I mean, I was paying bills. I was checking in product. I was doing inventory and you know, we had little kids and I would go downstairs in Broad Avenue where our corporate office used to be. And my son would be on the hip of our store manager downstairs. And I mean, it was a lot. I mean, there were times when we weren't sure we could make payroll. I mean, it was absolutely overwhelming and exhausting. Welcome to Driven By. I'm Sam Coates. On this show, I talk to people who have boldly blazed their own trail. I break down what drives them, the risks they take, what they've learned, what's most important to them, the ups and downs along the way, and I hope this helps you find what drives you. My guest this week is Gene McGee. Gene is one of the owners of Hollywood Feed, which is the fastest growing pet retail store in the USA with 110 stores across the country. You'll see from this conversation that Jean doesn't get caught up much with numbers and scale, just sticking to what she loves and how this serves the public. Jean and her husband, Sean, purchased Hollywood Feed in 2006. Before purchasing Hollywood Feed, Jean was a stay-at-home mom. This episode will expose you to everything you need to know about confidence, aligning strengths within a partnership, what happens when a key person leaves, building an ecosystem of talent, the humbling early days, the deeper why behind our work, and more. I had a great time recording this episode with Gene, and I hope it impacts you as much as it did me. Happy New Year to you and yours. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world, so this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. Gene, great to see you this afternoon. Great to see you, Sam. Thanks for coming on. Curious, I've heard you talk a lot or a fair amount, I don't want to exaggerate it, but about fate, how that has applied to your life, your husband, y'all's relationship, the work you're doing now. Let's go back a little bit. 20 years ago, did you have as much clarity about fate? How would you have described that in your life? I think I've always been a believer in fate, and I've always believed that God doesn't put any more in front of you than you can handle. 
and things happen for a reason. And you might just not know the reason then, but usually if you wait, it's a little clearer. I don't know about 2020. I'm not sure if we're going <laughs> to be able to say oh, with clarity why everything in 2020 has happened the way it has. But Yeah. So y'all have got 110 locations. You're growing at an incredibly fast rate. You're, from my count, the 10th largest pet retail supplier and store in the country. And y'all's growth rate is just exponential. But I'm just curious, back before this, you and your husband, Sean, purchased Hollywood Feed in 2006, what did your life look like and what did you do professionally? Well, before 2006, if you go back many moons ago, I lived in Atlanta and I was in sales in Atlanta for about five years after I graduated from college and then moved back to Memphis and worked for a local company, Nexair, and did sales for them. And then after Sean and I got married, I'd worked part-time, but uh, I was mostly home with our children that were young at the time. My son was born in 2002, so I guess in 2006, he was four. And we were finished having children, so I was ready to uh, face this task with him. And surprise, in 2008, we had our third child. (laughs) <laughs> right when everything was getting rocking, right? <laughs> right when I got everybody in school full-time, yes. So how many years were you a stay-at-home mom? About six. Did you enjoy that? Did you not enjoy it? A little bit of both, or what was that That like? is not where I am best, is home with young children. It was the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Did you know something was on the horizon, or were you just kind of making the best out of it? We had moved a fair amount, So it was difficult. And my husband had daughters here in Memphis that we traveled back and forth to see quite frequently. So it just wasn't really possible at the time. And um, like I said, I'm a believer that nothing bad lasts forever. So um, it wasn't bad, but it was very difficult for me. Yeah. Did you have any idea that when y'all purchased Hollywood Feed in 2006, that you would be where you're at today? I think we had an idea. Yes. Is that merely because... Your husband had been with AutoZone and opened up like 5,000 retail stores, or was there some other reasons that you just felt internally you had an idea? Partly because, yes, he had opened, you know, one kajillion locations at AutoZone (laughs) and uh, had run Office Depot, um, all of North America for them. And he's always thought big. He's never thought that this was going to be a small little local pet store, mom and pop kind of thing with three or four locations. He didn't really operate like that. Could you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit when y'all were looking maybe for a business or y'all were doing due diligence on Hollywood feed and, and then also just seeing the market overall, because it seems like y'all were incredibly early and I could be mistaken just in the general market, but now things are continuing to move more and more solid supply chain distribution. Good front-end retail, et cetera. And y'all just seemed really early on that. And y'all have a lot of momentum now, but can you maybe go back to 2006 and talk about what y'all are looking at then, what y'all saw and the need that y'all felt like was there? I think we saw how archaic the pet industry was. And there were the big box chains that were very impersonal. And I personally hated shopping in them. Or there were little farm and feed shops, mom and pop kind of shops. And there was really nothing in between. There was no uh, upscale, natural and holistic merchant. And I think as we saw, that was the way that human 
grocery shopping was going, the pet industry tends to follow the human. And when you saw back in 2006, the growth of the likes of Whole Foods and Sprouts and uh, Earth Fair and all the other natural grocers, it was a natural that the pet industry would follow that. But there weren't just a, a lot of choices out there in the market for people to shop. Would you have bought another business or would this have been the only type of business that y'all would have bought? The pet business was a perfect marriage for us. I was the pet lover and he was the retail specialist. So we looked at some other industries and nothing fit the two of us as well as the pet business. And the fact that Hollywood Feed was local to Memphis. I mean, I grew up here and... um my parents grew up here and we wanted to stay in Memphis. So this was a perfect fit for Sean and me. So it was kind of a, maybe a, a year or two process. Y'all trying to work through this and figure it out. I mean, I still sometimes think we're working through <laughs> figuring it out. Well, I meant the, 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 the choice. Oh, yes. We spent quite a uh, while writing a business plan. And before we acquired Hollywood Feed, they had, I think, up to seven locations and it just wasn't really viable or profitable. And so they closed the failing locations in about a two or three year span um, before we were able to then acquire it. So when we got it, they just had three locations. When you think about where things are at today, and I've also heard you talk about how you love investing in the team, specifically, I'm reading a quote that you love seeing the women in your company grow and succeed more so than they ever thought was possible. I'd love to spend some time on that, but you've all, you also shared that you've had a hand in their mentoring and certainly that makes you a proud mother. I'm curious if you're giving advice to like your kids or to anyone, if you're meeting with them, how do you encourage people to seek what drives them or, you know, what they really care about the way that they, that you care about pets and animals and how this has kind of played out in your own life. Is there any common themes that you've seen or any, any ways that you try to encourage or help or just work with people when they come to you and they're, look, and they're kind of hungry, they're curious, and they're trying to figure it out on their own? I think sometimes when we're young, we're impatient to find the right answer, the one thing that you're supposed to do. And I'm 53 now. And so I was almost 40 when we started this. And so when I was 25 or 30, I had no idea that this was going to come across any horizon. And I think sometimes when we're young, I was as well. We're so impatient to find the right thing that we were meant to be doing. And sometimes you just have to be patient to let sort of the water go under the bridge that's going to go there. And every job, I mean, I've told my daughters, every job that you have is going to give you some skills that you can take with you and use in your next job, just because you're doing something right out of college that you never saw yourself doing doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing for you. I think to be patient. And I think as an employer and as a mentor, our job is to find where our people can succeed. So at Hollywood Feed, you wear a lot of hats. You don't just do one job. There are many responsibilities in uh, in each job. And I think it's our job to find where people excel and succeed the most and you know, to peg them in that hole. Did you have that mindset 
the whole time? I mean, I know no one's perfect, but generally, do you feel like you kind of carried that with you? Or is that something when you look back, you're like, I didn't know that now, but if I did it again, but this is how I can help other people. I had never really managed people, so I definitely learned on the fly. <laughs> when we first started with our three stores and um, I think our like 19 employees, we were building a culture that was very much family. We had all of our meetings around you know, our kitchen table. We had employees at our house probably at least a night, if not three nights a week. So it became family. And so you really wanted them to succeed because they were part of your family. It wasn't just a job. It was something that everybody that worked with us in the beginning, especially, we all did so many different jobs and wore so many different hats that you wanted to help the people um, that were working with you succeed in any way. Yeah. When you were doing sales, like at Nexair and the other company that you talked about, did you have that thought process as well as like, this is building me for something else in the future? I don't think I did. So <laughs> I, it, I don't think so. I mean, I think I was young and um, yeah, I don't think I thought about it quite as much. I would love to tell you that I did, but probably was not my, you know, 28 year old self. <laughs> yeah. But now you can help maybe somebody else see that or experience it when you look back in retrospect. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. What about from a gender standpoint in the workplace? What is it about you personally that drives you to want to see the women in your company grow and succeed, but more than they thought was ever possible? Can you kind of explain some meat behind that a little bit? Well, 14 years of an all-girls school <laughs> is almost impossible to separate yourself from. And I went to St. Mary's for 14 years Oh, nice! Uh, with nothing but girls. And I saw the women ahead of me. I've seen the women younger than I excel and do more than they ever dreamed possible. And I think I'm a huge proponent of single sex education, especially for girls. And I think that a lot of times women, if they're, if they don't have that kind of education, they don't know to expect that they can do everything or anything that they want. Because they, are you saying they come in with a bias, with, with a bias of our, of our community, with a bias of our, um, of our world. And so in the workplace, if, if things just naturally unravel the way that they have been or the way that they are, they'll take a back seat and then there'll be untapped potential. There'll be untapped confidence and a chasm will continue to exist. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you hit on it. Confidence is the biggest obstacle to me for women in, in universities, in the workplace. I don't know how you guys come out with all the confidence and um, <laughs> <laughs> whether you have the ability or not, but um, women are not near as confident in themselves as men tend to be. And it's regardless of talent. Something I was listening to actually this morning was the CEO of GM. She did a podcast interview with, it's one of my favorite podcasts, Freakonomics, but she talked about the importance of diversity and from her standpoint, but how it is paramount in the, in the customer experience. I'm curious from a, from a store planning standpoint, from a customer understanding and knowledge standpoint, is there anything there about diversity and when you have diversity with decisions and planning, et cetera, how you can create an overall better experience for customers around the country for Hollywood feed? Oh, Absolutely. You know, I mean, our, our best decisions and our best run areas are run by people who strive for diversity and thrive in diversity. 
and our best store managers lean on other managers that are completely different and have a completely different skill set than they do in order to create something better for you know both stores if two managers are leaning on each other by feeding off of the strengths of each one of them absolutely they get a better product this might be a weird question but i've heard you say that something a lot of people don't know is that you have a physics degree and is there anything about physics and specifically first principles or anything like that that's helped you lead and, and grow and run you know your company i think the easiest the easiest answer or the most obvious answer is probably the right one. I mean, the principles of physics are generally quite simple. And sometimes I think we try to complicate things and make them more difficult than they need to be. And what does that look like with how you approach your day-to-day right now? We have a philosophy at Hollywood Feed, do what's right by the customer, do what's right by the employee, do what's right by the company. And if you keep to those three principles, if you're doing what's right by the customer, by the employees, and by the company, then the answer is usually pretty obvious. Is there just an element of simplicity, I guess, what you're saying and taking each day on, and then also how you are making decisions and operating that you've never lost sight of that? I think absolutely. And sometimes when you get down in the rabbit hole and you're trying to figure out which way to go, by keeping to those really simple principles, it makes you stay on course. It keeps you on course. And I mean, just like how we have operated during this time of COVID, doing what's right to keep our customers safe, our employees safe, and the company safe has to come first. Stepping back a little bit, I'm curious if you'll maybe open up about the structure that you and your husband created from the start, because y'all's success is amazing. And I mean, and let me know if my research is wrong, but here I have the 10 largest pet stores in the country. Number 10 has 93 stores. Number nine has 116. Y'all have 110. So in in my research, that makes it number 10. Is that correct? That's correct. So in roughly 14 years, y'all started with three stores and now y'all have 110 can you talk about the structure from either partners financing that retail f- footprint experience that you talked about that your husband has? Can you talk about just how that was kind of set up on the front end to where you can come out with so much velocity? We're fortunate enough to have wonderful investors that believe in the vision of my husband and believe in the ability and have let us run the company how we best uh, see fit and have not micromanaged uh, with the purse strings, but have allowed the growth to happen and supported the growth. I mean, most recently when um, we were dealing with the pandemic and the drop in people feeling comfortable entering our stores, we had the support to be able to buy almost a hundred vehicles And, you know, yes, we had the intelligence to see that as a positive play, but we couldn't have done it without the support of our investors. When you kind of step back and look at it, when y'all first started, did y'all go in and buy that first company with the investors? 
Yes, they've been with us all the way. Uh, in the beginning, Sean's goal, I think, was to open our first prototype in six months, but the company was not quite in the financial shape that we had hoped it would be when we took it over. So it took about 15 months for us to open our first store that was our prototype. And uh, that was in December of 2007. Yeah. That was in Collierville. That was our, our first store that we opened. Nice. It was a handful of employees and my husband and I and two guys uh, loaded all the product in the store, put the shelving up ourselves. Um, we we did it all. It was definitely um, very hands-on back then. What about from an income standpoint and a process standpoint? What are some of the things that you and your husband and y'all's partners have operated off of on how you're going to manage your income, how you're going to plan your expansions? Are y'all very disciplined with y'all's earnings, et cetera? How do y'all think long-term? Because again, it's a lot of retail leases. This is a lot. You just mentioned 100 cars in in a very quick period of time with COVID and same-day delivery. How do y'all kind of live your lifestyle or think about decisions from a long-term standpoint, day in, day out, when a lot of people, you know, wouldn't even have this very extensive and thought-out plan? We are very careful about the sites that we select where we put stores. Um, So we generally deal in A-tier real estate and um, try to take very few risks in real estate so that the stores, as we open them, can come up and get up to speed and be profitable in the shortest amount of time. But obviously, the first few months you open a store, it's not making money. And um, our investors have been very supportive. And uh, we've kept to the numbers that we've projected all along the way of how long it's going to take the stores to become profitable. And um, we, for the most part, have been on the mark. So I think with the success over the last 14 years, we've built confidence within the organization as a partnership with our investors. So if Sean comes up with an idea, they're usually on board. <laughs> the good news is we've had 14 years of, of good growth. Incredibility. It's a lot easier to ask now than it was 13 years ago. From a workforce standpoint, I've heard you talk a lot about you know people in their 20s working at your stores. Is that still the case, a lot of the representation for who staffs your stores? Absolutely. It's pretty physical to work for us. You pick up 30 pounds of dog food all day long. Um, same thing whether you're in the warehouse or the stores. So a lot of people that uh, are in their 60s may not still be up for that uh, physical task. And you're standing on your feet all day and dealing with the public. People coming in and retail and, and moving things. And like my dog, for example, this is embarrassing. I don't think he's the only one. Y'all have a store on Aaron close to our home and we've gone there for several years, but he just started uh, urinating all over your floor. And I I was so embarrassed. It's Uh, the very first time that's ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just like, can you imagine dealing, you know, with retail and smile on your face, finding something, moving stuff around the store, and then some dog just hikes his leg right on your floor. And then another dog's fighting with another dog in the bathroom. It takes a certain (laughs) kind of temperament. (laughs) It does. But for the most part, the dog, the dogs are well-behaved. Yeah. You know, obviously, it's it's no secret that millennials in general can be scoffed at some or a bad reputation for their work ethic. And 
especially compared to previous generations. I'm curious, how do you think about that? Or how do you, how do you see that playing out since such a large number of your workforce is that generation? What are your thoughts on that? I think we probably would have lower turnover rate if we didn't have as many millennials working for us, just because they um, don't have the patience as somebody who's a little older to get where they want to be immediately. But most of the people that come to work for us, their first passion is pets. And so it doesn't really matter if they're 25 or 55, their passion is pets. And it means so much to them to be able to make the lives of the pets that come in and the people who own the pets come in to make their lives better, that that probably is the most underlying factor about our employees is they spend time on their own researching. If your dog comes in and has a kidney problem or a skin problem or a behavior problem, if they don't know how to fix your problem. I mean, I've walked in and seen store managers researching on the internet how to help their customers' dogs. And that happens all the time at Hollywood Feed. And we have a forum that is internal where employees can ask a question of other employees. Hey, I've got a customer with a dog with this issue. Can you help me out? And um, that's what motivates them. And that is what I see much more so than the typical millennial bad rap. How do y'all test for that? Or how do y'all try to seek understanding if somebody has that passion or that care on the front end before you hire them? It's pretty easy to figure out you know, if they're passionate about pets, but we do have a, a questionnaire that's pretty extensive called N4 that we use. And you know, after you take it, it's a personality and strength test. And we use that to help us hire the right people. But even if we hire someone that doesn't have the passion they don't usually last. If I mean, if, if they get through on the N4 somehow and pass the personality, then like you said, the dog's fighting in the back and the dog <laughs> urinating in the front, it, it might get old for you if you don't have a real passion for pets. What about with y'all's executives? Is it the same way? Absolutely. Um, we mostly hire from within for people in the corporate office. I mean, we have a few people that we have brought in from outside, but most of our people transfer from the stores to the corporate office in order to fill spots there. That's really neat and very practical. We had a girl move here from Columbia, South Carolina, who started yesterday, I think, um, from our store in Columbia, South Carolina. Moved here just to work for y'all? Yes. She okay. works in the corporate office as of yesterday. So you're constantly just building this ecosystem, and then you're selecting within that. But the more you grow around the country... Uh, the more talent that you have for people that are aligned with what what y'all are doing and where you're going. Yes, absolutely. When you think back over the last 14 or so years, has there ever been a, a period where you felt like, I don't know if I'm capable of doing this, or I don't know if I want to keep doing this, or this is really hard, or these obstacles came out of nowhere, even with all the success has there been any of those times that you feel comfortable opening up about if that applies? And if so, could you elaborate on it? I think in the beginning when there were probably multiple points when my husband was on a forklift and I was bringing him lunch because I realized he hadn't eaten and he was delivering 
product to stores because that was the way he would visit the stores. Would he pull the product, load it in the truck, deliver it to the stores? And I was paying bills, which makes our CFO now absolutely shake because <laughs> um, that's not my strength. Um, I mean, I was paying bills. I was checking in product. I was doing inventory. And you know, we had little kids. And um, I would go downstairs in Broad Avenue where our corporate office used to be. And my son would be on the hip of our store manager downstairs. And I mean, it was a lot. It was, you know, I mean, there were times when we weren't sure we could make payroll. I mean, it was absolutely overwhelming and exhausting. And um, we had a a lady who came to work for us who we thought was going to be a lifer. And uh, she worked for us for about eight years. And um, it was about two and a half years ago she left. And it's still, she walked in and said, I I can't do it. And um, she had been like a big sister to my kids and like an extra daughter to me and had spent almost every Christmas and Easter with my family. And um, she moved out of town and left. And I never saw it coming. And it was like, having someone in your family tell you they don't want to be a part of your family anymore. And it was really, really hard. Yeah. What kept you going through it? Um, my husband, my husband and some serious wine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we, we cried together. I mean, we said, okay, we were going to do this and, uh, we're going to recover and the rest of the team as well. I mean, it was definitely not, one thing, and it wasn't over in a week, because when a large presence leaves, um, it's hard for everyone. But we're much stronger now. Something that I've learned by just having conversations with people like yourself and others, it really, it doesn't matter who the person is. When you start to kind of pull the curtain back, you start to see what you're saying, these multiple examples, and they never stop, it seems. I mean, there's somebody that I recorded with last week who talked about this sense of kind of unknown that he felt that was almost paralyzing 15 years ago. He's kind of going through that again right now. And I mean, he has hope, he has faith to kind of the things that you've talked about already on this podcast. But when you read about this person online, it seems like, you know, they've hung the moon and that they've done all this. And I mean, they were, you read article after article, but, and I feel like these conversations make the most impact when somebody like yourself who sees Hollywood feed, I don't know, the fastest growing pet store in the country. uh, I mean, I think that's got to be the case because just based off of what I read, but we definitely are right now. Yeah, for sure. All this wonderful success that y'all have and all this wonderful work for the community and even the more work you're going to do around the country with what you just shared and the messages I get from doing this podcast are people that are out there in the same path, but they're not getting written up right now, but they kind of know the deeper reasons and they're, and, and, and I think that's what really impacts people. We had to realize, you know, it's much bigger than one person. And um, what we built and created is a a family and a culture. And just because you hit a large bump in the road, it doesn't change the fact. How long, you talked about your child being on your hip and (laughs) you paying bills and not being great at paying bills and your husband loading the truck on the forklift and then taking it to the store. How long was that? Kind of like childbirth. You forget how long it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was a three years, something like that. It it wasn't six weeks. And I guess because y'all had partners too, and y'all had these projections. So it sounds like your husband 
was very disciplined about the numbers. Very, very disciplined on it. And I mean, we still look at daily sales almost every night, including if we're on vacation. We look at sales now of a hundred and almost 10 stores pretty much daily. <laughs> do you like doing that when you're on vacation <laughs> or do you feel like you have to do it? It's so funny. I mean, even our kids now, they'll follow certain stores near the way they have a friend working and they'll say, well, how did store 69 do? Well, we know <laughs> store 72 is where Aunt Lee lives. How did they do today? So it's just what we do. <laughs> yeah. How have you learned? It, it seems just based off of different things I've read about you and about, about your company, it seems like you really like having a relationship with your staff. You like having a relationship with your people. We've already talked about it earlier that you almost feel like a lot of the employees are like extended children, you know, extended family. How have you had to navigate your kind of draw to, towards people, towards your staff? It sounds like pretty relational, but then also having just a large organization that's quickly growing how have you learned how to kind of do that on a day-to-day -day basis as things have continued to evolve? Well, like I mentioned, when we started out, we had managers meetings at our kitchen table. And then my husband and I got this bright idea that we would visit every store at Christmas time <laughs> and take the staff to dinner. When we had eight stores and all were in Memphis, it wasn't really that difficult. Well, a couple of years ago, we realized there's no possible way that Gene and Sean McGee could visit every store at Christmas time or even in the fourth quarter and do our jobs. <laughs> or even if we just quit our jobs, we still couldn't do it. Yeah. Luckily, COVID has eliminated that responsibility because we can't do that. But we, for the first 12 years, had the managers come to our house once a quarter for dinner. And then we would have a meeting the next day. About a year and a half ago, we outgrew our house, <laughs> including the, the yard, the garage. We tended everything. And the last manager meeting we had was at the ballroom at the Hilton because we had about 160 people. Well, we haven't had one in now almost a year, I guess over a year. And I committed that I'd figure out how to have it here again because people, our managers said how much they missed the family feeling of coming in our house. I don't know. I have a school behind my house. Maybe we'll tent the field. I'm not sure what we're going to do because as we continue to grow, I mean, the numbers will um, increase, but I did commit to them that I would figure out how to have them back to the house because yeah. they all said they missed it so much. So I don't know that we've managed it completely well, <laughs> but I think because what we do is take care of people's pets. It's very personal. The only thing more personal could be taking care of people's children. So compassion and empathy is part of what we do every day. And so we have to have it for each other. Yeah. I know I read where you like, you like wine and you like to run. Is that true? True. So aside from maybe family, are those kind of up there on, on the list of priorities? Well, during um, COVID, I have become a smoker, oh, nice. not a carcinogenic smoker, <laughs> but an egg smoker. Oh, really? Um, my husband has a green egg, actually, that our employees got him about six years ago, and he's not really good at it. And so <laughs> back in March, when we were stuck at home, I decided that I would take over the green egg. 
And I now have smoked everything from deviled eggs to spaghetti squash and pineapple. Watermelon was a fail. Um, and every kind of meat that walks. So this so, is tied to you wanting to go to Italy for an extended period of time and go to cooking school with yeah, your dogs. I would still love to. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it without my, everyone knows I have this border collie mix that is completely attached to me. I, I couldn't leave him for six months. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would melt. So this is kind of in line with that and COVID and the green egg. It's just, that's where you're at right now. Is that, That's at least what I'm seeing based off of past history. Well, I also had to give up running because I have a bad knee. So I'm a walker now. Really? For the first 30 days of quarantine, I walked 10 miles a day for 30 days. I don't really? know why. Just yeah. Prove I could. There was a purpose to me asking that. It wasn't just some weird personal question with no aim to it, but... <laughs> Have you found any rituals or habits that you try to incorporate maybe in the morning or like each day to try to stay grounded or at least have clarity on first principles or what, what's most important when I imagine you have a lot of things coming at you? I used to walk my daughter to school. Oh, nice. Um, with our uh, border collie that is completely codependent, but <laughs> she graduated to the side of the school that is doesn't require me to walk her anymore because it's literally out our back gate. So now I just walk with the dog. I miss walking her um, because I felt like it was the best part of my day every day, I used to say. And um, now I have the dog. So I do I do try to walk with at least one or two dogs every morning. And uh, I think that it sets everybody right. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I think the animals all behave if they get exercise. And I think we as humans need it as well. So you're saying that that kind of ritual sets the tone and it provides some structure? Absolutely. Yes. When my daughter came home from college for an extended stay, she was my companion for a while. And um, I don't know, sometimes I listen to podcasts. Sometimes I'll go on for two hours. And um, if I have the time, I don't mind getting up early and doing it by myself. I think it helps. Coffee is a good thing too. <laughs> what about... With you and Sean, I mean, the marriage literally and figuratively just seems perfect from a Hollywood feed standpoint, uh, just with kind of the way you've the way you've already fleshed it out in detail about the foundation and then kind of the approach, the planning, um, the investors, the growth now. We haven't even talked about plans for the future, which I hope we get to. But there's all this like strategic and emotional connection, love of pets, value in them, deeper beliefs about their nutrition and, and the importance of it um, and how that's getting, how that's all kind of come together. But from a marriage standpoint, what have you learned or what's been hard to like really overcome and learn when you work within the same company, your work within a company that's growing so fast, but then you have your marriage, you have your own lives, which arguably, you know, are just as important, if not more important than the business, but that can depend on which, what a person believes but how have you learned how to kind of do all that under one roof? And what advice would you have on that? If you had told us when we got married that we would be working together, we would have both said you were crazy. <laughs> I think it took us probably having the first few years of our marriage behind us. So we can, we'd been married almost 10 years when we started Hollywood Feed. And um, I think in some ways it helps. Because if he comes home completely stressed because something went wrong, 
I understand exactly why that is such a stress on him and so difficult. And if I come home with a victory because I went to a new market and made some really great contacts, he's even happier for me because he knows what that will mean for us down the road. I think the hard part is it's really tough to leave work. You know, I think it's hard for everyone because now we bring our computers home and people can email us on our phones, but it's even more so when both of you work in the same office and it's hard not to talk about it. But we have a number of couples in our corporate office. It's very odd. (laughs) I think probably out of our top highest ranking, four highest ranking people, all of them have their spouse working with us. It's very odd. Does that concern you? No. I mean, it's just it's just the way it is. The problem is if one of them gets COVID, everybody else is shut <laughs> down. We did figure that out. <laughs> but it makes it so much more of a family. I mean, up until we were trying to keep space from each other, one of the other three couples was at our house at least monthly, if not weekly for dinner. And it makes it where you don't have any resentment from the other spouse if one of them is working too hard or spending too much time because they're all working towards the same goal. How have you learned to be deep relationally, like connected to the people you work with, the people you hire, the people that report to you, et cetera, but then also be clear on the expectations of their purpose and their role? How do you navigate that? each month or year in, year out to where you care so much about people, um, you care about their own well-being, you understand kind of why they're there, but then you also, you've obviously learned how to make those hard decisions or, and you've obviously, I'm sure, hopefully like everyone else have made decisions that, you know, maybe looking back weren't the right ones at the time, but you did it and you did the best that you thought you needed to do at the time. But then other times you made a lot of really great decisions, but how have you learned how to, to be so deep? connected relationally, but then also still operationally and and from a business standpoint, really operate and hold people accountable? Well, I think the business has to come first because if the business doesn't work, then none of us have jobs. And, you know, especially in the last year, that has been super evident that we've got to do it all right, or we may not be here next year. And not just for Hollywood Feed, but so many businesses that the business has to come first in order for everybody to stay employed. And if you're a really hard worker and you're really motivated and focused, then Hollywood Feed is an easy place to succeed. If you just want to get by and punch a clock, it's not. And all the people that are at the top rose to the top because they were really dedicated, hardworking, willing to go the extra mile And so it's just kind of worked out if you're not dedicated to it and really willing to do whatever it takes to succeed, then you're probably not going to make it at Hollywood feed to get into a, a position to where you could be super close with me. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world. 
with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. How have you learned how to personally evolve and grow given where we talked about your life experience when we had started, which obviously was very diverse and it, it seems like a lot of those skill sets and experiences were helpful, very helpful and to all these things that we've talked about from a, from a Hollywood feed standpoint. But obviously there's a lot of, it seems like experiences and expectations and needs that you had not gone through before. And so I'm just curious, how have you learned how to personally grow and evolve and kind of take on all these new things that have come your way and kind of looked at that year to year? Some of it was baptism by fire and making the wrong decisions. I always thought I would have a business mentor and um, I can promise you that your spouse cannot be your business mentor. <laughs> that does not work. Um, <laughs> and um, I have been lucky enough to have a fantastic relationship with my father, who I worked with at Nexair. And he is my go-to when a situation comes up at work and I need to know how to handle something delicately. I mean, he managed a lot of people for a long, long time for quite a number of years and did it quite successfully. And so he has been such a great resource and a senior statesman, a pillar of wisdom every time I ask him. And um, usually his answers are the simple ones, you know, to do the what's right by the person. Was there a sense of confidence that your father gave you early on where when you did make a wrong call or you did learn a lesson the hard way where you still felt like you, you could learn it or you could figure it out or you could do it the right way next time. And that's excluding all the times where things went really great and really well. I'm just curious, was there a formative kind of experience in that relationship that kind of gave you the belief and confidence to, to really take this on? I don't, I mean, if there was, I don't remember it. Um, I think it was a thousand pieces of advice over so many different scenarios, whether it was when I was in school, when I went to work right out of college and had no idea what I was doing. And I was calling on engineers who are mostly older men who had no respect for me. And I mean, he told me to stand up to them every time. And he always thought that I was able to do whatever I wanted to do and capable. I mean, he never once said, you're probably in over your head and you can't do this. I mean, I, I can't imagine a time when he would have said that. And it pretty much is undying support. Yeah. Um, we'll figure, we'll figure a way out of this. I, I know we can. He's an eternal optimist. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very crucial and very impactful. I'm curious how you and your husband have taken that because if you're going to open so many stores and I know you are constantly building data 
and refining the process and working the system. How do you and your husband think about the things that go well and then the things that did not go well that need to be tweaked? Can you can you maybe give some advice or hash out maybe thinking more scientifically about how y'all embrace it and how you, even to the way that you look at things coming up in the future? We have both been really good at not blaming the other one <laughs> when one of us makes a decision and something goes horribly wrong. <laughs> In the beginning, we knew we wanted our stores to look and smell and feel different than a farm and feed store. We wanted Hollywood Feed to be a place people wanted to come in where you it smelled like coffee and, and cookies baking. And so he and I went to a... Um, to a buying show in Atlanta, one of the huge markets, buying market in Atlanta. And we were absolutely overwhelmed and exhausted after three days of walking through those mazes of showrooms in Atlanta. And we bought what we thought were some of the cutest boutique items that would do so well because both of us loved them. And both of us gave us a thumbs up. We said, we can't go wrong. Well, those were the things that did not sell. They're probably back in some back room somewhere <laughs> that never sold. So we learned that if we both gave it a thumbs up, it was probably going to fail. And if one of us questioned it, it had a better chance of succeeding. <laughs> but one time I bought these party packs and I thought people love to celebrate their dog's birthdays. And so it was like a pizza box full of a banner and some napkins and plates. It was a whole pack and it was done in our logo. I, oh, I had them custom made. And um, so the pallets of them arrived. And five years later, we were still trying to figure out how to get rid of them. And um, I mean, I fell on the sword and I said, that was the party packs for me. And like, it's still a joke around the stores. Like we found a party pack in the back, Jane. But he never made me feel bad about my decision to bring in 1,300 party packs. Um, I'm a number girl, so I can always remember exactly how bad I messed up. Yeah, And I think not to dwell on your mistakes when you looked at something and thought it would be a success, and for some reason it didn't work, just to, to learn from it, to not repeat it, but not to dwell on it and not to blame because it doesn't do anyone any good. And so what you're saying is, just week in, week out, you're going to have those things that pop up, but it's almost like you've either trained or learned at an early age. How do I immediately kind of go to a place of this is not going to sink the ship, just keep rolling and almost process it, understand it, and then account for it the next time and just this kind of cycle. Absolutely. In the beginning, everything was new and we didn't have a lot of pet stores that we could look at, for example. Like I said, they were either big box stores that were completely impersonal and we knew we didn't want to be that, or they were farm and feed stores and they sold a lot of cow feed and, and chicken feed. And that wasn't us either. And when we went to look at the higher end boutiques in Chicago or whatever, that didn't fit Memphis either because we're big dog people in the South. And most of those little boutiques up north, they really service people with small dogs and high rises. And so we didn't have a lot of examples. It was trial and error. And um, there was luckily a small enough group. We, you know, did some things by committee back then. And, um, you know, now we have a lot more of experience. We have a lot more running room. 
a lot more ways to look around and look at some of the other competitors that we have and sort of what they're doing right to kind of extrapolate from there. How have y'all gone about trying to teach your kids the same lessons? Our kids have worked in the stores since they were old enough to reach the cash registers. (laughs) (laughs) The big challenge is the the contest was who got to be the youngest to learn to ring people out in the stores. (laughs) I think if we've done anything right, we taught them a work ethic. They all work in the stores, especially during the holidays when it gets busy. I mean, even our 12-year-old, we can't pay her because she's too young. But um, Internship. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. They've, um, I mean, my daughter who's in college now, she went and helped out in North Carolina for three weeks when we bought a store up there and had a really big project to uh, inventory and um, clean out. And she stayed in a hotel up there for three weeks by herself and helped out up there when she was 17 or 18. Wow. It's also what they know, and they feel very comfortable and confident helping people out with their pet problems. I mean, their friends all come to them if their dog is itching or has an upset stomach. I mean, our youngest, who's 12, was selling a crate to a guy and explaining to him the benefits of a two-door crate versus a single-door crate. I'm sure he thought, who is this little girl who's 12 <laughs> you know, trying to sell me this? But... I don't know. It's um, it's what they've grown up knowing. And I think they have such a sense of pride being a part of it and watching it grow that they all want to be a part of it. This is so fascinating to me hearing you talk about this with your life and then with your kids and how they're raised and then also thinking on other conversations as well where, and I'm, this may be obvious to a lot of people, but I'm just able to see it so clearly that the only reason your kids know about pets is because of your love for pets. And then the only reason your kids think about maybe taking those risks or going up to that hotel room for three weeks when they're, when she was 17 is because of you and your husband kind of letting her do that and trusting her to do that where there's a lot of parents that would just totally freak out and, and, and not let that happen. And so it's like, I mean, those are learned things and, and that's just as much a part of, your children's life and their interests as it is to what's unique to them on their own. And it's, it's just kind of really interesting to hear how that gets fleshed out, but how formative y'all's life, y'all's decisions, letting them have freedom and then also putting them in situations at an early age. And then them also seeing how you and your husband approach y'all's relationship and the, and the risks that you take or the choices that you make, how that helps them have confidence at an early age as well. I think they've been fortunate to see the company when it was something that you could really wrap your hands around. And they've known so many of our young employees and have grown up with them as their own mentors. I mean, a couple of the ladies here in Memphis have really become mentors for all of our children and are definitely like big sisters to them. And, you know, they go to them for letters of recommendation or advice or whatever it might be. And I think it's so important for young people to have other adult figures in their life besides their parents, because you're the one telling them to pick up their socks and get their homework done and be home by a certain time. And I think it's so important for them to have other adults in their life that they feel more comfortable with, maybe that are younger and that can teach them lessons that maybe they won't hear if you are trying to teach it. Shifting gears a little bit more back to more business stuff, but I'm curious 
How have y'all gone about thinking about kind of the churn of staff, of, of team members, et cetera, because not in a negative standpoint, but just with things growing with so much momentum, as I mentioned earlier, the fastest growing pet store in the USA and number 10 that I can see on here and quickly approaching, you know, moving past that. I'm curious, how have y'all handled roles, people, when you increase your presence across the country and you have to just move people in with different skill sets? How have you learned how to do that or how are you learning how to do that with such a fast moving organization? We have such a strong staff here in Memphis that we've been able to move some people out of here who know the culture and can bring the culture to Charleston, South Carolina, or Charlotte, North Carolina, or Dallas, Texas, or Austin. And it's hard, for instance, to have a single store in Indianapolis really understand the the culture that we have and who we are and what we stand for. So we we have 10 regional managers and we spend a lot of time with them. Most of them grew up in a store. And um, like when we opened stores in North Carolina, we moved a manager, a manager, store manager from here. She actually used to run the Ironway store by your house. Oh, nice. And um, she moved to Charlotte and she bleeds us. And so she's able to instill that culture in her staff there all over the Carolinas. And we have uh, assistant managers in all of our stores as well as managers. And we have those people into Memphis at least yearly for a meeting. It's about two or three days and um, make sure that they feel ownership in the store, just like the store managers do and make sure that they understand the culture. Part of what we do is we spend 40 hours every year doing classroom training for every employee so that they feel equipped to take care of the customers. And um, they've heard from veterinarians and formulators and authors and PhDs. And so they know what we stand for because everybody says, oh, Hollywood Feed, you're known for being you know, the pet food experts. I mean, I had a friend call me yesterday because her dog was sick. And we want to make sure all of our employees have the confidence to help everybody that comes in. And it's been so strong in Memphis that um, we've been able to send people from Memphis to sort of create that culture in other places. And that has been a huge help. We've grown quickly, but not so quickly that we haven't been able to spread the strong Memphis culture uh, around to other places and recreate it with maybe a Texas flair or you know, a little bit of a Georgia feeling to it, but it's still still the same family. Can you talk about how y'all plan and prioritize and look ahead and how y'all act on that? For example, when COVID happened, y'all removed the $5 delivery fee and announced free same-day delivery. I think I saw that that was kind of beta tested back in 2018, but y'all moved very fast on that. We've only talked briefly about it, but you just mentioned it that y'all staff has 40 hours of a year of training. You mentioned earlier in this episode that y'all must have your own educational kind of program. It sounded like cloud-based internally within the company and then also a, a messaging component, almost like a Slack kind of thing for people to ask questions and learn and iterate and, and develop their expertise. So I'm curious, how do y'all look about what's going to provide significant value 
in the future and then also start to prepare and execute and, and launch those things that truly make y'all a very unique and special customer-oriented operation? I think we go back to the principles of doing what is right by the customer. And it may sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, back when COVID hit and people didn't feel comfortable going in our stores, we know that the reason people come to us is because of our people in the stores. So it wouldn't have done us any good to have put your dog food and treats and a toy into an Uber Eats car and have some stranger show up to your door and drop it off that you couldn't ask a question to. And we were fortunate that we were able to keep all of our people and keep them working by doing what was right by the employees by saying, hey, we're going to have you drive the delivery car so that we're really giving the customer the same level of service, whether they pick up in store, whether they receive a same day delivery order. We've had people you know, send uh, reviews and thank yous back because our employees went inside and put the dog food in the you know, metal bin for you know, the lady because she couldn't pick up the dog food because she just had surgery. Um, I mean, I think keeping to the same principles has been sort of the keystone and, and guiding light for us of how are we going to pivot and change and adapt to what the world is but still doing what is right by our customers and our employees. What do you see? I mean, you've talked about earlier how the pet industry, which I just looked this up. I I mean, I knew it was a lot, but 64% of people, families in the United States have a dog or a cat. I think it was like 50 and then at COVID, I think it's grown (laughs) huge. (laughs) (laughs) So you talked about how the pet industry follows human consumption trends, et cetera. And you talked about Sprouts and Whole Foods, same-day delivery. I mean, uh, that's in line with the most innovative companies in the world right now with gig delivery and fast service, you know, Prime, just everything like that. But I'm curious, what are you seeing now over the next, let's say, five to 10 years that the way the world's moving? And then how do you see the pet market kind of falling in line with that based off of trends in the past that you've laid out? I think people are accustomed to ordering their groceries online and then picking them up, you know, curbside, um, whether they do it at Target or at Kroger. And, you know, we have provided that same curbside service. And I think people are used to it. I think, you know, when people are, especially moms in a hurry, they are going to expect that service. And they don't want to have to go into the store every single time they need something. And I don't think it matters whether it's a Hollywood feed or a Target. And I think if you aren't willing to provide those services for your customers, I think you're going to lose your customers because I think people are going to expect it. People have gotten used to, you know, the joke is that you place the order on Amazon and it's there before you close your computer. Well, we can actually do that because we deliver it in an hour. and. I think people are going to continue to expect that. I mean, just like we expect immediate everything with our phones in our hands at all times, I think sort of the immediate nature of delivery and service is just going to continue in more and more aspects of our lives. And I think that we are going to have to keep adapting and changing to providing quicker, 
more accurate and better service to people because if you aren't, somebody else is. Can you give an example maybe of something new if you see that or if you feel strongly enough about something at this point, something other than like same day delivery, something that might be coming down the road? I mean, Sam, if I knew what was coming down the road, I would probably be <laughs> at work in Washington. <laughs> I, I don't see anything earth shattering new in pet. I think that freeze dried, I think that frozen is going to continue to grow. I think more sort of natural and holistic products are going to continue to be on the rise. Um, I mean, I don't think everybody's going to go back to feeding pedigree. I think we've gone a long way from when people kept the dog in the backyard. It's now a part of the family. And, you know, I, I say I say that in the 70s, it was in the backyard. In the 80s, it's in the garage. And now it sleeps in the bed with people. Yeah. And I don't think that is going to change. I think so many people have pivoted to being able to work from home. And so it's so nice to have a companion at home that'll just sit at your feet. So I think almost the humanization of pets is going to continue and everything that that entails. This might be a real far out there, but because of the loneliness that might be generated by social media technology, these social platforms to where people confide in their pets even more to somewhat fill the void with relational absence. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, now my kids all call someone that they met online a friend. I'm like, well, that's actually not a friend. That is just a contact. And I think that, you know, as people have gotten used to doing school online, I mean, I definitely think we're, we're becoming more isolated and hopefully it's temporary. But I do think that pets fill a void where people were. And I think that when it was not freezing cold, it was so refreshing to walk through neighborhoods and see people out in the yard with their kids. I mean, it was like, we laughed all summer and spring. It was like Mayberry because everybody was out walking in the neighborhoods with their dogs or playing in the yard with their kids. And I'm hoping that people maybe are reminded how nice that is to just slow down and enjoy the, the people in your household and your pets. And it doesn't cost anything and it doesn't, you know, low risk of any infection from anything. And, you know, it lifts people's spirits. Yeah. There's a reason that St. Jude has uh, therapy dogs. Right. From an idea standpoint or from how you're developing your own kind of thoughts about the future and how you're continuing to innovate, what do you read to try to understand new information? Like, for example, the way you talked about freeze-dried foods or you know, we've talked about innovation. I mean, to go out and buy a hundred cars, $3 million, whatever that was in a very quick manner, like no family owned business can do that of a pet retail store in the country. But because of the things that we've laid out here, y'all are able to do that and you're able to do that fast. But I'm just curious, how do you develop your own thinking? How do you take your own kind of day-to-day life experience with your own friends with your own community, with your own coworkers, et cetera. But then what information do you maybe read or kind of digest to try to understand the direction that you want to continue to move things in for the future to the things that we just talked about? In the pet industry, I mean, there are oodles of publications, but I spend more time on TED Talks 
and podcasts, listening to, I think, how people are dealing with sort of the, the changing world and the new stresses that they have. And, you know, I, th- I think the workplace, as much as we are like a family at Hollywood Feed, I- I'm not going to lie and tell you that it's not different when everybody's masked up and their doors are closed in their offices uh, where they used to be open. And we used to gather around sort of the break table when somebody sent cookies in. And now it, it's just, a, it is a much colder place. And I would be lying if I, you know, told you any different. I just hope that it's temporary. We, we still do have a yard out behind our building you can take your dog out there and let them out with a ball or to go, just go to the bathroom or just to walk around. And uh, people are more comfortable there to be together. But I think trying to figure out how we can still feel connected, even though we have this separation, is a challenge for any business. I'm curious, as we kind of wrap up, what are you thinking about for the future? And what are y'all working towards? Like, for example, We've already talked about y'all's growth and y'all's number of stores, but the people that have the most amount of market share in the United States do not seem to have the model that y'all have, where there's a devotion and a drive for the pet itself, for its well-being, for the nutritional benefits of it, the internal structure of awareness, education, and application, and then also technology and innovation, et cetera. So... It just seems, looking at the facts and the data, that there is a large runway of opportunity that y'all have around the country, and it also seems like y'all are positioned well to take advantage of that opportunity. I'm curious to know, A, by me just looking at the facts and looking at research and talking to you, do you feel that I see that correctly? But then B, what are the things that you're looking for and that you're excited about over the next three to five years? I think that we don't need the whole piece of the pie to be successful. I mean, people are always going to shop at the Walmarts of the world. And we are not looking to be the pet store for every pet owner. We can't be everything to everyone. But as you said, the pet industry is large enough that we can be successful for people who care about what they're putting in their animal, just like they care about what they're putting in themselves. And that's enough for us. We don't want to be the pet store for every single person. That That's not what Hollywood Feeds model is built for. We'll always be priced very competitively and, and have good quality products. But just like not everyone shops at Whole Foods or Fresh Market or Sprouts, not everybody's going to shop at Hollywood Feed. And we understand that. But we know we're doing what is best for people's pets. And I think in the next three to five years, we would like to see, you know, our uh, young stores continue to grow and become more profitable. And um, we will continue to grow probably not as quickly as we have, just because, like I said, the future is a little uncertain. So we don't want to be foolish. We want to see how things go. But we have every intention of continuing to grow. Does the revenue, does that feel any different? I mean, you talk about your child on your hip, paying bills, not being the ideal bookkeeper. And I mean, you laid that out very clearly. And now with what we're talking about today, I mean, it just is what it is. Fastest growing 
pet retail store in the country. Does that drive you or do you care much about that? Or do you care a lot about it? I'm curious. What was that like for you personally? We've been under the radar for a lot of people for a long time. So I don't think being called out as the fastest growing pet store is necessarily what the goal is. The goal is, can you continue to grow as long as it makes sense? And to continue to provide customers with a great experience. We've had opportunities presented to us where, you know, to acquire uh, other pet store chains and it just hasn't made sense for us. I mean, we've done a few uh, acquisitions, but we've passed up quite a few just because it hasn't been right for us. So getting bigger at whatever cost, it has never been the end goal. It's only when it's right, I, I would say. Yeah. But I think the pet industry is going to do nothing but continue to grow. So I think we're fortunate to be in a growing industry. I don't know the statistics on this, but do you think the percentage of people getting a pet is going to increase or do you think it's just going to continue to follow the trend and or if population increases, then therefore pets will increase? Well, I think one thing is millennials aren't getting married and aren't having families as young. So they're more apt to get a pet. So I think that the percentages will continue to grow because, you know, back when my parents got married, you know, they got married young, they had children young and getting a pet wasn't necessarily on their radar versus every one of my daughter's friends isn't married and they all have animals. And I think that trend will just continue. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything we haven't talked about or that I haven't brought up or haven't asked based off of what you shared that you feel like would be helpful or would be encouraging to share to anybody listening? Adoption. Pet adoption. Can you talk about that? Adoption is near and dear to our hearts. And we have over 1,500 rescue partners, which are rescue groups that partner with one of our stores. And every store has an angel tree in it at Christmas time, gathering uh, donations for a particular rescue group. And at this time of the year, they need a lot of help. They need all the help that we can give them because there are a lot of people that might have donated that aren't able to now. And if you're thinking about getting a pet because you have a child home from college for 10 weeks like I do, to consider adopting. There's so many animals in shelters that need homes. And uh, I myself have three rescued cats, four rescue dogs, and a snake. Um, <laughs> a snake. <laughs> yeah, it's my daughter's. What kind? Oh, it's a ball python. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she, for some reason, can't take it to college, so it stays here. Oh, my goodness. It's big. It's big. <laughs> wow. You're bold. <laughs> yeah, so she got a cat instead, but then brought it home for 10 weeks. <laughs> but rescue is what we do. I mean, we're, we're all about serving our communities in our stores. So we have, you know, normally adoption events weekly in our stores. Uh, we do, you know, spay and rescue sponsors, microchip clinics, and getting involved with the community is a big part of who Hollywood Feed is. I mean, we give over 100,000 pounds of food every year to support animals in shelters. So it's a big part of who we are. How many pets are there in the USA? Around 80 million. And then I see there's 3.2 million dogs and cats that need a home. In shelters, yes. And that's split 50-50 between each. Can you maybe address some of the reasons why people 
don't want to adopt a pet and then what are maybe some of their blind spots or things that they don't understand or see that can kind of dispel that myth because from what you're saying if people getting a pet is only going to increase then the pets that need that are in a shelter that need to be adopted is only going to increase and it sounds like something that's very near and dear to you and to anybody that cares about pets themselves so can you kind of can you address that I, I took a tour of the Humane Society last week, and it's nothing short of a miracle that I came home empty-handed and didn't bring home an extra dog. But um, I think people really are um, hesitant sometimes to adopt from a shelter because it's just sort of the fear of the unknown. And they've never done it before. And they've heard some nightmare story that happened to some friend. But they think it'll be safer to get a animal from a breeder. And statistics just don't show that at all. I think that if people would actually try it, then, I mean, nine times out of 10, it works out beautifully. I know just as many people that have had breeder situations that didn't work out as people who adopted pets. I mean, I think a lot of times if you get a young dog, the last thing that the adoption group wants is for the pet to come back. So they're going to be very upfront if there are any issues with the animal. And a lot of times a younger pet, you can train. You just have to be willing to train a dog, whether you get it from a shelter or whether you get it from a breeder. Uh, A lot of times people don't, I think, recognize or acknowledge the amount of work getting a pet actually is. People know how much trouble having a baby is, but (laughs) they they definitely underestimate the responsibility of owning a pet. If you come into Hollywood feed, I mean, everybody has a rescue and not just one, three or four. And I think if we were the uh, norm, the number of dogs in shelters, if Hollywood feed employees were the norm, there would be no dogs in shelters because we would have them all. Right. But I just wish people would take a chance and realize that, if you go to the breeder and get your dog, then there is probably a dog that is going to be euthanized because somebody didn't come get it. And I think it's such a great lesson to be able to teach your kids. Uh, we we kept this this dog safe and we kept him from being put to sleep. And we've done something good. Um, you can always foster before you adopt if you're not ready to make the commitment. And adoption groups are always looking for fosters. So it's sort of try it before you buy it. And um, that has worked for many people. Um, Unfortunately, if you work for Hollywood Feed and you foster, it usually fails and you usually end up keeping the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so much. I mean, even to what you're talking about, you're talking about the legitimate problem, the legitimate need, but then also our tendency as humans to have these myths in our head and then to what you're saying, if you just actually go back to a physics standpoint, a first principle standpoint, and you try to look at the root of it for what it is and you try it, it's oftentimes not what you kind of envision in your head. And then you, you feel and you see the impact that you're making for the pet itself and for the need, but then also you're expanding your own horizons. And, you know, I'm just hearing a multiple ways of benefit to what you're sharing. Well, and here in the Mid-South, we have such an animal overpopulation problem because for one thing up north, the elements in the winter, unfortunately, kill their strays. And Jeez. the breeding 
uh, season is much longer here, and it's just not as likely that dogs get killed because of, of, of a freeze. And so the overpopulation here is huge, and people don't spay and neuter um, down here because they think that their hunting dog needs to have a litter in order to be a better hunting dog. So you, you just have a huge overpopulation problem here. And, you know, luckily the shelters up north do take some of our overpopulation, but MAS still has to put dogs down. Yeah. I mean, every single day. It's easy not to think about it. Or... It's easy not to think about it and not to look at it, but it's also easy to make a difference. Yeah. So you just go on and down the MAS. Get <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Gene, thank you so much for coming on this afternoon. I mean, we've talked so much about your own personal experience and story with this and with your work, but then also the deeper reasons behind it. And we've talked about how it would feed, but then we've also talked about the need of adoption and some of the blind spots behind that. And I'm just so thankful that you carved out the time to come on this afternoon. Thank you. I appreciate it. For more information, go to drivenbypodcast.com and subscribe to our weekly email list. Check out my show on Twitter, Instagram, and all other platforms at Sam P. Coates. If you like the show, spread the word and tell a friend and leave a review. This really does help.